So today we are starting a a new sermon series, uh, which is exciting because uh, we finished up our our way through Galatians last week that we actually started when we launched public worship as a new new church. Uh, Now, the the book of Ruth, some of you maybe are familiar with it. Some of you maybe have never been to a church before, and so you you don't know what what this story is about. And, And really, Ruth has a special place for me the, the first church where I interned um, after college, so probably about 10 years ago, uh, they were preaching through Ruth at that point, and then I was leading the young adult group, and so we actually were kind of lining up to the sermon series, so we, we went through the book of Ruth, the book of, uh, not Luke, um, Ruth, um, and, and so it, it was that time that I, I really fell in love with this book. Um, it offers so much to us as 21st century people. And really, it's a, it's a surprising story. Um, it is only one of two books in the, in the Bible named after a woman, along with Esther. It's also the only book of the Old Testament that's named after a non-Israelite. And, and so really, Ruth, this woman, would have been one of the most marginalized members of ancient Jewish society. Uh, she would have been marginalized because she was a, a Gentile. She is a Moabite outside the covenant people initially. She would have been um, marginalized just by virtue of being a woman in a male-dominated society. She would have been marginalized because you know, at the beginning of the story, she's childless, and often women at that time were defined by childbearing. Uh, but then also she was a widow who had recently lost her husband, had, had no means of support. And we know that there was a time as well where, where widows were often overlooked, and hence so often the commands in Scripture to, to care for the, the widow and the, the orphan. So it's a, it's a surprising story for those reasons. But also it's a, it's a true story. It's not just historical fiction, a, a, something that's a nice story to read. But, but Ruth herself um, stands in the, the genealogy of David, and ultimately of, of Christ. That she is uh, Ruth, uh, sorry, Ruth is David's great-grandmother. Um, and that's actually part of the reason that this book may have been written uh, initially, because people may have made sort of accusations against David as the, as the king, saying, well, don't you know that this, this king He's descended from a Moabite woman. We know how bad the, the Moabites are, and it might have undermined in some ways a claim for authority. Um, and so many scholars think that this book was written as an apologetic for David and for his house. And, and so rather than Ruth being sort of this, this sad part of David's story that you want to hide, uh, her story is actually a testament to the faithfulness of God and something that we want to display to the world and, and celebrate. So this is a, a true story, but also it's not just surprising and true, um, it's also a love story. And, and that's something where sometimes we think that's the only thing that Ruth is, but it's this, this incredible story of Ruth, this unexpected woman who, who falls in love with this um, brave man named Boaz who uh, sacrifices um, potentially his reputation to um, bring her, redeem her, marry her. But the most important thing about the book of Ruth is that it is a, a book of redemption, that Boaz redeems Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi from a hopeless position, 
and that ultimately is pointing forward to Christ and his redemption of us when we are in a, in a hopeless situation. And Ruth's steadfast love to her mother-in-law, Naomi, points us to a, a God who shows steadfast love to his people in, in so many incredible ways. So this is just to, to give the little preview of the, the book of Ruth. And so, so today we are beginning with chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. So if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. We also have some um, pew Bibles that are there near you if you didn't, didn't bring a Bible with you. And, and this is on page 222 in the, the pew Bible. So again, Ruth chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. And there were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Mehlon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her sons and her husband. This is the, the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that we aren't just trapped in one place in time, but that you give us access to know that the struggles and the joys and the hopes of, of people who lived so long ago, Lord. And we, we thank you that, that you've given us the, the book of Ruth. And as we begin today and work our way through this exciting book, Lord, we, we pray that it wouldn't just be an interesting story to us, but that we would see in it who you are, and that you would actually use this book, Lord, to bring us closer to you, to bring us into relationship with you, to know you through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the first thing that you, you see here in the beginning of this passage is just a, a bad situation. <laughs> and you see that this bad situation very clearly in verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this book begins at a, a time that it calls the, the days of the judges. And this was a, a period in Israel's history between the death of Joshua, who brought them into the promised land after uh, Moses, and it ended with the coronation of, of Saul. And so this is mid-14th century B.C. to the 11th century uh, BC. And this is arguably probably one of the worst periods in Israel's history. You can read about it in, in the book of Judges. Um, people uh, were walking away from the Lord in droves and the refrain that comes over and over again in the book of Judges during this time it, what is this, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as people were doing what was right in their own eyes, that this cycle would come over and over again through this period. 
the people would, would be worshiping God, but then they would turn from the worship of God to, to idols. And then God would send them into, um, bring oppressors who would judge them, who would, they would suffer with outside nations. But then the Lord would raise up a judge who would deliver the people of Israel, and then they would be good for a little while, and then the cycle would start again. So this is a, a, a bad time a time full of rampant immorality, a a bad situation. But also, our our text says that there was a famine in the land. And that that goes over our head often. But especially in the ancient world, famines were apocalyptic events. I mean, we live in a time where we have interstate commerce, there's globalization, so if food doesn't grow in one area, it's fairly easy to bring food in from another place. Of course, there's still famines in the, the world today. But that wasn't the case at, at this time, that they were always on a, a, a threat away from starvation, just one bad harvest. And a few bad harvests, it wouldn't take long at all for, for people to, to die. And, and we've even seen this just in relatively recent history. You can think in the, the mid-1800s, that Irish potato famine, over a, a million people died reduce the population of Ireland by 25%. Um, Or you can think in the 1930s, 10 million people died in the Soviet Union through a famine. And so this isn't just ancient societies, but most of us here today probably won't face a severe famine, or we haven't faced one yet. And, And so in some ways, this bad situation here in the text seems kind of irrelevant to us. This is 3,000 years ago. Israel is over 5,800 miles away. So does this relate? Well, and it, it does, that we don't face an exactly this bad situation that's the same. We're not in the period of the judges. We're not facing a famine. But we do certainly face bad situations. Um, our time, like the period of the judges, is a time where people do what is right in their own eyes. That, that It's a time where we're so prone to, to walk away from the, the worship of God and, and turn to ourselves as the, the chief uh, authority for life and, and what is right and wrong. And also, though we don't have a, a famine of bread or food, we have a famine of, of, of goodness, of justice, of, of mercy. And that's something that you see when you turn on the TV. You, you see murder and racism, abuse, oppression, sexual immorality, dishonesty, greed, hatred, stealing, war. It could keep going and going and going. And it's not just what we see on the news, but it's actually just what the world has been like since humanity fell into sin through our first parents, Adam and Eve, that that the world has been a a bad situation, a place of sin, a place of, of brokenness. And I think that every single one of us in this room, to one degree or another, has been a victim of that has been a victim of the bad situation that we face in the world. But then as as we face this bad situation in in different ways, we have a a natural reaction to it where we want to do something about it. We want to make things better, but then unfortunately often we make bad choices in response to our bad situation that actually make things worse. And that's what we see here in our text. Look again at verse 1. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, 
and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mehbon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So here we're introduced to this, this family unit, the, the, the family of Elimelech. And, and at first, it really seems like this family has a lot going for them in ancient Israel. I mean, they're, they're from one of the most godly tribes at that time, the, the tribe of Judah. Uh, throughout the period of the judges, some of the, the great heroes that rescued Israel came from the tribe of Judah. Ultimately, David, Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. But also, they, they come from a town with this amazing future. Uh, Bethlehem, which I presume most of you have heard of, uh, it, it's where two generations later, David would be born. And then ultimately, a thousand years later, Christ would be born in this town. And the prophets even predicted this is the place where the Messiah is going to be born. So it is a very special place. But then also, this, the family of Elimelech, they have a lot going for them just in their family unit. Elimelech, a name means God is king. It's married to Naomi, means pleasant. Uh, they have two sons. And, and that would have been a, a sign of blessing to have two sons at that time. The Lord is showing favor to them. But as the, the famine came during this period of the judges, they faced famine and hardship just like everyone else, despite how much they had going for them. And I can really imagine Elimelech waking up each day, going out, trying to find food, but it's either too expensive or he can't find it. As he searches and searches and searches, his kids are getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And so he would begin to fall into despair and think, I can't just stay here. I have to do something. I have to act in, in some way. I think that that's an understandable mindset. And so he, he decides to, to take matters into his own hand, he, and he flees the promised land, he goes from, an, and it's ironic actually, because Bethlehem means house of bread. And so he flees the house of bread to try to find bread in a, in a foreign land, and he goes to a place called Moab. And if your Bible has a, a map, you can look at where Moab is, but basically it's to the east of Israel on the other side of the, the Jordan River. And scholars talk about how there, there is a fertile plateau in Moab. So it's definitely possible that there could have been food there, or at least there may have been rumors that, hey, check out Moab. I think that there may be food there. So he uproots his family and becomes an immigrant in Moab. Now, what do we know about the Moabites, the people who were living here, the, the people that they were entering into this culture? Well, we know that uh, the Moabites were descended from Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. And they were actually descended from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters after they fled Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not a great start for a, a nation, and you can read about that in the book of Genesis. Uh, but as time went on, the, the Moabites became some of the most consistent enemies of Israel. Uh, listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 23. He says, No Moabite or Amorite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pethor, and Mesopotamia, to curse you. 
And so what Moses is saying here is that Moabites are not allowed into the worship of God's people. And the reason for that is because when Israel was fleeing slavery in Egypt, they didn't bring food, they didn't bring bread, they didn't grant them passage. But to the opposite, they brought somebody named Balaam to try to curse the people, to try to bring evil on the people of Israel. But even in addition to all of these things, the, the Moabites were a constant thorn in the, the people of Israel's side through false gods. And listen to what we read in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And often this pull of idolatry from the Moabites on the people of Israel came through intermarriage with Moabite women. Listen to Numbers 25, verse 1. It says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These women invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. But in addition to, to all of these things, the people of Moab also oppressed Israel from time to time. In Judges chapter 3, uh, the king of Moab, Eglon, takes control of Israel and is awful to the people of Israel. Terrible oppression that the Lord eventually delivers them from. But if you think about this in, in modern terms, fleeing to Moab to escape a famine would be something analogous to a Jew in Poland trying to escape famine by fleeing into Nazi Germany. That you're, you're fleeing into the enemy's territory to try to, to save your life. And so we can really, as we think about this, question the wisdom of Elimelech here. I mean, it's, it's definitely understandable that, hey, there's, there's food there, I'm willing to take the risk. I mean, because I'm gonna die here, so I need to, to do something. And the problem isn't necessarily going there to buy food, but actually you see the problem in, in verse two, it says that they remained in Moab. It, it wasn't just a, a short vacation. And this should have been something as, a, as an Israelite that he, Elimelech should have known better because Israel had this, this bad track record a few hundred years before this time of going to a foreign land to try to escape famine. That's exactly what the patriarch Jacob did, took his family to Egypt, they got food, that was good, but then they remained in Egypt and became slaves for 430 years and had to be delivered from the land of Egypt through the hand of, of Moses. So this, this doesn't turn out well, abandoning the land of promise for uh, the land of those who do not worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And, and listen to actually how this professor from Westminster Seminary, one of Jonathan's professors, in his commentary on Ruth, he says, Many bear the label Christian, yet their Christianity has no real impact on life-defining decisions. Just as Elimelech bore the name, my God is king, yet lived in a way that made it evident that God wasn't his king at all. The road we choose for ourselves often make our deepest heart commitments plain for all to see. And I think that's true, that the, the, the choices we make, it reveals our our heart commitments, the thing where we're trusting, 
how we think we're going to find life and, and salvation. And so what he does is he's in a bad situation, makes a, a bad choice flowing out of that that makes things worse. And there's actually a name for that. I, I didn't know this until th this week as I was uh, doing some research. It's called the, the cobra effect. And, and apparently in, in India, when they were under the, the rule of um, Britain, they faced this terrible problem with cobras. And so the British government said that they would basically have a bounty on cobras. And if people brought the, you know, the body of a cobra in, that they would be paid. And so what people started to do was farm cobras. <laughs> of course, then some of the cobras escaped, and so the cobra problem became way worse in an attempt for them to try to, to fix the problem. And so it's this idea of you know bad situation, that then you make a bad choice to try to fix it, and then it only makes things worse. And listen to how Psychology Today describes this phenomena. When we're frustrated with our limitations or the limitations of others, it's very tempting to make things worse. It's human nature. We feel irritated, angry, helpless, and we want to be free of these feelings. We can't stand to bear feelings so stuck or so bad. And there's a temptation to do something, anything, to find some control, to get things moving, to get rid of those bad feelings. And while it's very hard to get things rolling in a positive direction, it's very easy to get them rolling in a negative direction. <laughs> And, and I, I think that we can all identify with that in, in, a, in various ways where we feel powerless, we feel weak. We want to do something. We think, well, it's better to do something than nothing. We can at least feel good doing that. But we move things in the wrong direction. It goes from, from bad to worse. And this is exactly what happens here for Elimelech because he, he tries to overcome his sense of desperation, but in the process puts his family in an even worse situation. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, I'm sure that some of you here may have experienced the, the death of a spouse, and I can only imagine how painful that would be. But the, for a woman in this kind of ancient society, the pain would have been magnified because women were highly dependent on their husbands for support. But at least here, at first, Naomi still has her, her two sons. And, and children were kind of the retirement policy that people had, that, that your child would, would care for you when you were in need. Children were the, the life insurance policy that you would have where if, if your husband died, at least your, your, your son could step up to the plate and care for the family in, in key ways. But here, uh, we, we see that as they have this insurance policy, that it doesn't seem to help. Because notice how they respond. This is the cobra effect at work here again. That, that the sons of Elimelech, they um, go and they take Moabite wives for themselves. And this is something that their father may have actually tried to restrain them from. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your children your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. Uh, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But here, the father's not in the picture anymore, and so the sons, again, we're in a bad situation. What do we do? 
Hober effect, we're going to take Moabite-wise. But then things only go from bad to worse and then hit rock bottom. And that's what we see in the, the second half of verse 4. They lived about 10 years, and both Mihalon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And it's interesting how, how the, the text is just so abrupt in the way that it describes both the death of Elimelech and Naomi's sons. Um, it's just the stark, bare details. But what the, these deaths, I mean, it's a profound situation. It leaves two grieving Moabite widows. It leaves Naomi alone. And arguably, she could be in the, the worst position of a woman at that time. She's a widow with no means of support. She's too old to, to remarry. She's lost her retirement and her insurance policy through the death of her sons. And then she's, above all of that, alone in a, a foreign land that, that hates God and hates his people. And th through all of this, I think Naomi has been probably the most, per the victim of it even more than others. Like it was her husband's choice to, to go to, to Moab, her son's choice to, to marry Moabite women, and then here she is left completely hopeless and, and seemingly alone. And I, I think that some of you may be able to identify with this pattern in your own life where you you faced bad situations, you made bad choices, and then eventually that, that leads to, to rock bottom. And you can think about, here are some examples, uh, people who face the bad situation of abuse as a child. And then the, the cobra effect uh, takes over, and they try to take control to assert themselves, and studies show that sometimes people who are abused go on to uh, abuse. And, and so things go from bad to worse, and then if left un, unchecked, uh, it hits rock bottom. Or here, here's another example where somebody faces the, the bad situation of depression. And, and then, again, the cobra effect takes over. They make bad decisions in a bad situation. They, they begin drinking or, or using drugs in some way. Then they become addicted. Things go from bad to worse, and, and then if left unchecked, hits rock bottom. Or sometimes people will face a, a bad situation in a marriage where they, they feel like they're not being loved, they're not being cared for, and so they, they follow the cobra effect and they, they pursue an adulterous relationship. And at first they feel like, yeah, this is providing the affirmation, the, the care that I think I needed, but then things go from bad to worse and it hits rock bottom. And I could keep going listing many, 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 many more kinds of stories just like those. And they could be the extreme kind or, or just the mild kind that, that all of us experience on a, on a daily basis. And I think that, that all of us can identify with this. And, and so even now you could be thinking, what is the bad situation in my life that I'm facing? And what are the, the bad choices that I may be tempted to take in order to try to solve this problem instead of responding in the way that the Lord would have me respond. Or maybe some of you have actually hit rock bottom, that you're in the same kind of situation that Naomi is in, where you, you've gone through the bad situations and, and the bad choices, and here you are in verse 5 alone and wondering if there's any hope. You're wondering if God cares, or maybe even if God exists, if he can act to save his people at all. 
And that really is the, one of the theological questions that is being posed in the book of Ruth, that, that God, does God actually care for us, for his people, when we're in bad situations, when we make bad decisions out of those bad situations? And so what we see throughout the book of Ruth is that God is, is full of steadfast love to those who are powerless, to those who are without hope, to those who are in bad situations, to those who have made things worse through bad choices, to people who have hit rock bottom and are wondering where to go next. And, and we'll see this as we go through the book for Naomi, that she's hit rock bottom here in verse 5, but God is going to restore her, is going to give hope through this unexpected woman, this Moabite Ruth, and uh, her husband-to-be, Boaz. But also, Israel hit rock bottom during this period of the judges. And the Lord is going to restore them and to bring hope through uh, the great-grandson of Ruth, David, to, to unite Israel in the, in the worship of God. But then ultimately, it's our entire world that has hit rock bottom and has continually made bad choices over and over and over again since uh, the beginning of time. And what we see here is, is a promise that God does not leave us alone. He does not leave us at rock bottom, but he's going to act through the, the offspring of both Ruth and Naomi, Jesus Christ, to, to save his people. And really, Jesus Christ is, is, is somebody who was born in this town of, of Bethlehem, this this town that we see here at the beginning of Ruth, and that as, as fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ entered into a bad situation. That's why he came into the world. And he's the only person who, who didn't make bad choices to try to fix a bad situation, but he made the right choices all the way. But then he actually went to his death. He suffered. He died. He hit the true rock bottom as he took the, the wrath of God for sin upon himself. And he didn't do it for himself, but he did it because of our choices, because of our problems, because of our bad situations. And he paid the penalty that we deserved and rose again from the dead. So this is just such good news for us here today, that if you find yourself helpless, if you find yourself in a bad situation, if you find yourself making bad choices, then our response is to, to look to Christ, to, to repent, to trust in him, to continue clinging to Jesus Christ as our only hope in life and death, and that his love and mercy will be displayed in our lives just as it will be displayed through the life of, of Naomi. And, and really, it's that love of Christ that we see here in the book of Ruth that also is displayed for us in, in the Lord's Supper. We, we see this visceral picture of, of rock bottom, that Jesus died in our place. His, his blood was shed. His body was, was beaten and abused and, and died. But he, he did it so that we can actually, we're not in the famine longing for, for God to, to give us bread, but the Lord gives us bread. He, he gives us uh, the, the fruit of the vine of, of celebration and, and the, this bread that we have is not just bread that will feed our, our body, but we actually know that by faith we can feed on Christ and, and on what he has done for us decisively once and for all to, to rescue us from rock bottom. 
possible. Again, wait today, but then talk to me about what it looks like to, to follow Christ, to, to go public with your faith. Also, if there are, are young children, we'd ask that they wait until they could be interviewed by, by the elders of our church to make sure they understand what is going on here as well. But for the rest, you don't need to, to be a Presbyterian. You don't need to be a member of Hope Church, but you need to be somebody who is cl clinging to Christ, looking to him for, for everything, knowing that he is the only person who can rescue us from rock bottom and from our bad decisions that we are have made and are are sure to, to make again.